So for those of you who are just joining us this Sunday, we've been in a teaching series called Summer by the Sea. Now I want to see if you can remember, what is the sea that we're referring to? The Sea of Galilee. There we go. So Jesus performed many miracles, and he did many teachings in his ministry, but almost all of those miracles and teachings happened in this one small area, the Sea of Galilee. It was the center of the Son of God's signs. Now, if you can remember back to July, we learned that Jesus was healing the sick. Jesus, the great healer of mankind. The next week, we learned about Jesus calming the storm. Right? They were out on the boat, so Jesus is that great word that brings order from chaos. And finally, we learned about Jesus casting out demons from two wretched men. Jesus is the highest authority on heaven and on earth. So what did we learn from these miracles? What did we learn from these events that took place? It's profound. See, Jesus has all dominion over disease. Jesus has absolute authority over the elements. And Jesus has total capacity to cast out demons. Well, today we will continue hearing about the signs that Jesus gave on earth, signs that point to his divinity, right? Jesus is God, and everywhere that he goes, he is king. So the church commonly refers to these signs as miracles. And if you ask anybody, maybe not in the church, or maybe even within the church, what's a miracle? You might get the response, oh, a miracle is, is something that's impossible. But I want to challenge you guys today to not define a miracle as something that's impossible. Why? Because everything is possible with God. Right? So a miracle to Jesus is actually something different. And I, I put up a definition here. A miracle or a sign, it's, it's a symbol that points towards Jesus' true nature. And I want you guys to get this idea of a sign because you might hear about the miracle, right? You might hear about this event and you might totally miss the sign. And I don't want you to do that today. I want you to see the miracle. This miracle that we're going to be talking about today is the feeding of the 5,000. You might have heard of it. But I don't want you to miss the sign that it points to Jesus' true nature. So I'm going to read today from Matthew chapter 14. But I want you guys to realize that Matthew's not the only one who talks about this feeding of the 5,000. See, the disciples and the apostles and the people who wrote the New Testament, they knew this was a sign that people needed to hear. So all four Gospels actually have an account of this very event. Matthew, the tax collector, right? Mark, the friend of Peter, Luke, the physician, and John, the apostle, all wrote about this event. We're going to read today from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. You can follow up along on the screen. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him. On foot from the towns, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. 
and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Let's pray. Oh Lord, today we want to hear from you. We don't come to church to just hear a regular guy speak about regular life occurrences. We don't come to church to affirm our human ideas or to elevate our worldly status. Lord, we come to worship and to adore you. We come to hear your word to us and be refreshed. We come to lay down our burdens at your feet and be transformed by your spirit. Lord, please work that transformative power in our hearts and our minds today. Don't let us leave this building without that. Don't let us continue our dull lives with our heads down. Lord, shake us from our slumber. Open our eyes to your glory today. We give this time to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been wrestling with this passage for the past couple of weeks. The feeding of the 5,000. If I had to summarize it, I would put it this way. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus cares for and physically provides for the multitudes that come to him, pointing towards his perfect love and spiritual provision for his worldwide church, of which we are a part, right? And what does this mean in your life? It's pretty simple. It's that you can trust in Jesus' perfect compassion and his limitless power to provide for you in a super abundance. I want you guys to trust that, right? You can trust Jesus' perfect compassion and his limitless power to provide for you in a superabundance. So as we take a closer look in the passage today, I want to talk first about Jesus' perfect compassion. You and I, it's pretty safe to say, don't have this perfect compassion. We have very limited compassion sometimes. We're so nice and we're patient and we're kind when it's, you know, convenient for us. We wave our neighbors ahead of us on the street when we're not in a rush, and then we honk and beep and cut in front of them when we are in a rush and we're tired from work, right? Or we ask if our family needs any help when we see them struggling with something, as long as we're not already trying to do something. But the moment that we're just trying to get into the kitchen, grab a quick snack, it's like, oh, I don't want to deal with whatever that's going on. I'm going to just try to tiptoe around and avoid this whole situation. And that sort of activity, it's not surprising to us. I mean, we sometimes do it. We expect to be treated that way, almost, by people. It's not, oh, I got beeped out on the road. That's a normal sort of thing. But that's actually our sinful nature. That's humanity's fallen nature that makes us do that. And I want you guys to picture for a moment and think about somebody that isn't controlled by that sinful nature. Somebody that doesn't let anger or impatience control his life. And that person obviously is Jesus who I'm talking about. His perfect compassion. Only Jesus can do this. But it's easy just to say, well, Jesus was perfect he can do it. I can't. I want you to consider the context in which this miracle happens, guys. So Jesus' perfect compassion, it's actually coming out brighter when we realize the dark background, the dark context behind it. Just like a star might look brighter on a dark sky behind it. The first thing to realize about the context of this miracle is that this is a very emotional moment for Jesus. We have to realize he's building a kingdom Okay, so we have to think about the kind of pressures that Jesus might feel. Maybe some of you today are CEOs or presidents of national companies, okay? So you know that if you don't get work done, there are going to be hundreds maybe of people that were counting on you to do that thing. 
and they are going to be worse off because you didn't get your job done or you didn't do it well enough. So you work extra, extra hard to make sure that work is done perfectly. Or maybe you don't have a very big company, but you're an entrepreneur. And you're starting it up. You might be the only employee, but you know that your livelihood depends on this. So in order to have success in your business, to have success in your life, you put in the extra hours whenever needed to make sure your business can thrive. Well, that sort of pressure, to be in that type of a leadership position, think about what it's like for Jesus, our first pressure here. It's that he is building a kingdom from scratch. Now, of course, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, right? And there's only so many hours in the day. This is probably a very stressful thing for him to think about and for him to actually have a lot of worries while he's building this kingdom. I want you also to think about the timing, perhaps it's pretty poor timing. While he is building this kingdom, Herod the Tetrarch hears about Jesus. This is the passage right before in Matthew. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, as he's sometimes known, is actually one of the sons of Herod the Great. And if you remember two Christmases ago, we talked about how Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus. He tried to kill him when he was a baby. He killed all the boys in Bethlehem, a horrible crime, just to try to get this king of the Jews who had been born. It was the whole reason they escaped to Egypt for a time. So Herod Antipas was actually the son of this Herod the Great, and he's a tetrarch or a Roman ruler over the territory of Galilee. Now, the territory of Galilee had been split into four different pieces. So tetrarch, there's four rulers that were all the sons of Herod the Great, and they each got a little piece of the kingdom. Well, just so happens that Jesus is under the control of the same family that tried to kill him as a baby. Now he's living, and there's powerful murderers coming after him. Why? This is a really dangerous position for him to be in. Well, he's worried about this, because for most of, the life, he, most of his life, he probably flew under the radar. He was a simple son of a carpenter. But now, Herod the Tetrarch starts hearing some gossip about Jesus and about the miracles that he's been doing. And he's starting to think, oh no, maybe I have to worry about this Jesus. If you had the government knocking on your door, you might be a little worried even today, right? We can relate to that kind of feeling. So, He's got two pressures so far on him. He's building a kingdom from scratch, and there's these powerful murderers that had tried to kill him before. They're coming after him now. So Jesus' fame is becoming a little dangerous, but that's not all, right? There's a third pressure. You remember we heard about John the Baptist last week. John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus at the start of his ministry. It's a wonderful thing, except Jesus had just heard the devastating news that John the Baptist had been killed. He'd been beheaded by this exact Herod, the Tetrarch, that was coming after him now. Now, John was a beloved companion in Jesus' ministry. They were cousins. They'd grown up together. Maybe you're here today and you can think of a beloved cousin or a brother that you had, that you just remember those sweet times as kids and all the great memories. Well, that's the person that Herod killed for Jesus. That's sad. That's deep. And Jesus is just going to have to go through one more emotional roller coaster that he didn't need in such a climactic moment in his life. So that's the stage, the three pressures that are on Jesus for this event. So that's what's happening beforehand right at we get to the point in Matthew chapter 14. So I want us to take a look at the first half of the first verse. It says, when Jesus heard 
what had happened. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So with everything going on in his life and his ministry, Jesus decided it was time to get away for a little while. His disciples were working hard. They needed a little rest. He was tired from the constant public ministry, and he wanted to get some time alone with God. His cousin John had died, and I'm sure that Jesus wanted to get some time to properly grieve that loss. So I think we can all relate to the way that Jesus might be feeling. Makes sense that he might want to get away privately to a solitary place. But that's when the exact opposite happens, and that's the crazy thing. Jesus is heading to a solitary place. Luke's record of the instance says Jesus is heading towards Bethsaida. So I threw a map up on here. You guys can see the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum with the flags by it. Capernaum was like the center of Jesus' ministry, right? So he's probably somewhere around there getting work done and saying, okay, we needed to take a little break, take a boat ride over to Bethsaida, right? Bethsaida was one of the towns that the apostles and the disciples would have been familiar with, but it's a quaint kind of fishing village. Not a whole lot goes on there. Um, So he knew he could get a little bit of rest. The other interesting thing about Bethsaida is that you can see that river that snakes up to the north, That's the Jordan River, right? So the Jordan River cuts straight through the Sea of Galilee, goes north to south. And Bethsaida was on the other side of the Jordan. What that meant is that it's on the other side of the dividing line for the Roman Tetrarchs. So over here with Capernaum and Galilee, that's Herod's territory. But over here with Bethsaida, that's Philip's territory. And Philip didn't care about Jesus. (laughs) So it makes sense that Maybe Jesus is thinking, let's get away for a little bit of while. Let's just fly under the radar, take some time to rest. This is a good time to head over to Bethsaida. But they don't quite make it to Bethsaida, it seems, because this is when, and we read from the second verse, or the second part of verse 13, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So feeding of the 5,000, I mean, that's a lot of people. He's trying to get away to this solitary place and Hearing about Jesus going there, the crowds just start to form. Forming all around, I have the map up here again, forming all around these towns, maybe they're talking and forming together, and then they all meet at the north tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus when he arrives on the coast. I wonder if you guys have ever thought about that many people gathering together. When I first thought about 5,000 people, I just thought, wow, that's, that's a crazy amount of people. It seems a little unrealistic that they would come to him on foot. But I have a story, and it's, it's a fun little illustration that I think will show you how easily this sort of thing can happen. Many of you know that I got my undergraduate degree from Villanova. It's a Catholic university nearby, and they do communion, I'm sure, at, <laughs> at this university. But it was a great, <laughs> it was a great university, and there was one thing that every freshman knew. If they were hungry at 2 a.m. for it, greasy cheesesteak, there was only one restaurant to go to. That restaurant was Campus Corner. Now, aptly named, it was literally right on the corner of Villanova's campus. And I've had quite a few cheesesteaks from there in my day. Everybody knows this is the place to go. Well, one day I'm walking to class, and I remember this distinct feeling. It was like I was kind of a fish swimming upstream. I had my head down, I'm kind of listening to music, and I'm heading this way to class, and everyone around me just is is heading, almost rushing towards Campus Corner. It felt weird. I was like, am I going crazy? So I look around, and I'm like, no, this, this is definitely happening. Every single person around me is going, like running towards Campus Corner. 
So suddenly my, my friend jumps in front of me. His name's Marquise. I see him. I'm like, hey, Marquise. I grab his shoulder. What's going on? <laughs> he turned around and he, he couldn't hide his excitement. He said, Drew, Harry Styles is at Campus Corner. I was like, oh, wow. So if you're listening to pop music, I mean, you recognize the name Harry Styles. He's worldwide famous, right? He was part of One Direction. He's doing his solo stuff now. He has very questionable fashion choices, but he's been on a lot of magazine covers lately. So Harry Styles is at Campus Corner. And it's so funny to think about, but this is an exact moment that was fueled entirely by word of mouth, right? Someone at Campus Corner probably texted a friend, like took a little picture, like casually a selfie maybe with Harry in the background. They sent it to their friend. Their friend screamed out loud. Everybody heard it. And I even heard something from Marquise, because I asked him, hey, can I use this in a sermon illustration? And I heard something that I didn't even know before. He said, when, when I left my building that day, this is Marquise talking, I, I was on my way to practice. I saw people running, and one of the girls was like, Harry Styles is at Campus Corner. And I cannot describe to you how quickly I turned myself around and I sprinted towards that place. <laughs> That's Marquise for you. But wow, I mean... This illustration shows just what could happen if somebody might have been noticing, oh, why is everybody walking north around the Sea of Galilee? And then someone screams, Jesus is at Bethsaida. <laughs> Maybe they were bringing people that were sick with them and they thought Jesus the healer. Oh, now I can bring those family members that need healing. Jesus is a famous guy, so that's something that could happen. But some of you might be a little angry that I compared Jesus to Harry Styles. So, fair enough, there is one major difference between these two stories. Now, when Harry Styles came to Villanova, these massive crowds formed to see him within minutes. And he got out of there as soon as he could. My friend Marquise said he actually never got to see Harry that day. And I'm sure security was keeping an eye out and decided to rush him out of there as soon as things got crazy. They probably do that on a routine basis, right? Too many fans, time to leave. But Jesus... What did he do? Let's see verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus, you remember, is not, he's not in the ideal emotional condition to handle such a large crowd. He's actually trying to get away to a solitary place. There are just too many things on his mind, bigger fish to fry, things he has to work through first. But when he sees the crowd. I mean, he could have easily picked up the oars and said, let's go off to a different place. But when he sees that crowd, he has compassion on them. And he puts their worries ahead of his. He serves them when he could have been doing his own thing. And I might leave when I saw that crowd. I don't want to be too harsh on Harry, right? Harry Styles left, I might leave, but Jesus, he had compassion on the crowd. Praise God for his tender care and his loving mercy. Who else can we lean on when we are in need? Only Jesus has that perfect compassion. When Jesus sees so many needy people in front of him, he shows his true colors. His heart aches and longs for these people, and his heart aches and longs for you today. Don't hide yourself from such a loving Savior as Jesus. Come to him in your weakness. He doesn't look down on you. He doesn't turn you away. No person is too needy. No heart is too hard. Jesus wants to love you and to serve you. And sometimes even the Christian leaders in our lives, they won't want to or know how to love and serve us well. 
Maybe some of us here today have been let down by church leaders. But Jesus never grows tired or bored with us. He always knows our needs and how to meet them. So please, I implore you today to let him love you. Jesus is perfect compassion. Now, I'd like to keep moving through the passage. We haven't even gotten to the miracle yet. We've just realized that Jesus' heart for the broken sinner is full of compassion. He wants to love and to serve you so much, but wow, I mean, that's a lot of sinners that he needs to help. Can he do it? Let's talk about Jesus' limitless power. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And remember, the the total count of the crowds present in this remote place was 5,000 men besides women and children. So counting women and children, we're looking at 10,000, 15,000 people at minimum. I want you to look around you here in this sanctuary for a minute and just think if this place was packed full of people, how many people could we fit? My estimations, 200, 250, that would be a packed room. That's not enough to fit the crowd that came to see Jesus. I thought about Villanova's basketball stadium. They built a new stadium recently. This is just a generic stadium picture. Think about a a full crowd at a March Madness game, right? College basketball, the stands are going crazy. The total that can fit in Villanova's new stadium is 6,000. That's not enough space to fit the crowd that came to see Jesus. Another place that I thought of, Subaru Park in Chester, Pennsylvania, that's a soccer stadium. Now we're talking. This this is another just generic photo. But Subaru Park can fit 18,000 people. Now we're talking. This, This is the size of the crowd that came to see Jesus. He was looking out into an open, like, FIFA crowd. The wave was going around. People were excited. But this is how many people, just picture in your mind, a soccer stadium, packed, full, to see Jesus. This is megachurch, if there ever was one, right? So when the disciples suggest that maybe it's time to send these people away, You've been teaching and healing them all day long, and now they need to eat some dinner, right? That seems like a reasonable suggestion to me. How are you going to feed a stadium of people? But Jesus tells them something fantastic. He says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. Jesus, what, what could you possibly mean that we give them something to eat? They look in their basket, they have five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a stadium? Guys, we just had a church picnic, right? Maybe 75 people showed up, and we had those those dumplings from the food truck, delicious. Imagine Jesus saying, okay, now feed the crowd of 75 with five dumplings and our two Keurigs in the back. That's just not going to happen, guys. I ate six dumplings myself, and I'm not ashamed. That's just not possible. So when he tells the disciple to give the crowd something to eat, it's so that the disciples would realize their lack of ability. The disciples would look into the crowd, look back at their basket, and say, we can't feed this many people. It's almost absurd. And after they realize their very limited power, Jesus continues. Verse 18. 
Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Guys, Jesus has limitless power. He is willing and able to feed the crowds. And through his power, after he blessed and broke the bread, the disciples were able to fulfill Jesus' first command. Right? He had told them, you give them something to eat. And through the power of Jesus, the disciples did exactly that. The bread was multiplied through the distribution. The disciples didn't see a big pile of bread that Jesus made appear out of thin air. No, it was in the breaking and the distributing of the bread that the miracle took place. Faith in their Messiah was necessary to work that miracle, but when they listened to Jesus, he worked through their hands and through their feet. Everyone present, all 10,000 plus of the people there, were satisfied. Jesus was able to satisfy the physical needs of every person present, one man satisfying the multitudes. And not only were they satisfied, but the, the disciples picked up extra food, 12 baskets full of broken pieces. So they started with one basket full, they ended up with 12. It shows what? It shows that Jesus has more power than necessary to satisfy our most essential needs. If this miracle shows anything about Jesus' power, it's that he has limitless power. 10,000 plus of the people there, satisfied. Psh, easy. In fact, we've got more than we need today. It's fantastic. It's miraculous. And it points towards that true nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I want to, as we conclude, transition here. In this passage, we, we learned that Jesus physically provided and cared for the multitudes that came to him. He saw them like poor sheep without a shepherd. But this miracle that Jesus performs, the feeding of the 5,000, it points towards Jesus' complete spiritual provision and love for his true flock, the worldwide church. So Jesus blessed and broke the bread before he fed the multitudes who came to him all over the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus was blessed and broken by God in order to provide for the souls of every Christian in the world. I want to repeat myself here. Jesus blessed and broke the bread before he fed the multitudes who came to him from all over the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was blessed and broken by God in order to provide for the souls of every Christian in the world. John's Gospel account of the feeding of the 5,000 gives a little more theological discussion afterwards. It makes it pretty clear here in John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will be thirsty. Billions of people have been fed all over the world, symbolically eating the body of this broken Messiah. And there is more than enough to satisfy everyone who comes his way. Not only is Jesus able, but he willingly gave his own life for this purpose. We learn today of Jesus' perfect compassion and his limitless power. And friends, today I am telling you that this is the ultimate example on the cross, that Jesus willingly gave himself up to be broken on the cross, and that this death he endured, it's more than enough to satisfy our starving souls. All our sins are forgiven in him. We are in a place of spiritual superabundance because of the sacrifice 
that Jesus made for us on the cross. Praise and glory be to him. And today we'll celebrate communion, as you heard. So this bread and this wine that we drink, it's symbolic. Jesus is the true bread and the true wine that we live on. We would be dead in our sins and an enemy to God if it wasn't for Jesus. But let's remember that Jesus is that bread of life. Believe in him and be saved. You will never go hungry again. Let's pray. God, we are humbled and amazed at the salvation that you worked. Thank you for providing a superabundance for us in Jesus. We love you and we worship you, our creator and provider forever and ever. Amen.